You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. There's a beautiful stanza in, or verse really, in the hymn, Rock of Ages Cleft for Me, that's been resonating with me this week. Here it is. Not the labors of my hands can fill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. You might have to read that a few times to get some of the sentence structure there because it's not really written for our understanding for some reason. But if you sing it enough times, it'll make sense to you. And I loved singing it on Ash Wednesday. It's been with me ever since. Ash Wednesday was just this last Wednesday, which begins Lent. Uh, Augustus Taplati, I think is the last name, in 1763 wrote the song. And it talks about the necessity of divine intervention for our salvation. Divine means God's intervention for our salvation. The rock of ages, Jesus, is the one who saves us. No matter our labors, the labors of our hands, no matter our zeal, no matter our tears even, all of those things cannot atone for our sin. Thou must save and thou alone. There's a beauty and a comfort in the assurance of our salvation guaranteed to us by the work of Jesus on the cross. There's the cross back there. You can look back at it if you haven't seen it yet. And this, that the centrality of the crucifixion and the story of Christianity, the crucifixion as the final saving work, brings us hope today in our war-torn, broken world. And in our, our, in our uh, broken world, broke Jesus. That's what cleft means. Broke the rock. And in Jesus' brokenness, we find our salvation. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Jesus broken open. We can hide ourselves in Jesus. It's a, it's a nice image, I think. The season of Lent, the season of silence, the season of repentance is about seeing ourselves in, in the world in the bad shape that we're in, the bad shape the world is in, and then relying on divine intervention of Jesus to make things right. God is making things right, and God has made things right. That's the heart of our faith. And then we're free to confess our wrongdoing when we mess up, when we make a mistake, when we miss the mark because we're no longer condemned. And we can then, we we can confess and we are free to because we're not condemned. And in our lack of condemnation, we can collaborate with God in this project of world redemption because we are free to do so. We're saved and so we can live into the salvation and invite the rest of the world into it. Our right behavior now is preceded by 
God making everything right. And so we're not condemned when we fail. And we're free then to labor with our hands. To have zeal without respite. Because that all is no longer trying to atone for our sin. All those things, our zeal, our tears, our labor, are a celebration of salvation, of the completed work of Jesus. Here's the hymn's opening. I don't have it, but I'll have to read it to you. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide my... Oh, it's here. Wait, wait hold on. Was the, was the verse I was quoting earlier up there? I went the wrong way, but you helped me. God is making all things right. Jordan is a servant of God. Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let thy water and thy blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. The rock of ages broken for us, cleft for us. We hide ourselves in Jesus, becoming one with Jesus. And that water and blood which flows from Jesus' dead body is the double cure of sin's guilt and, and sin's power. What's that mean? What's a double cure? That we're no longer guilty. And that sin no longer has power over us. That we're no longer sentenced, we're no longer condemned to hell. And also that we no longer have a proclivity to sin. We're free. It's about freedom, right? It's about liberation. I think seeing Jesus' work as complete that God made everything right, has a downside, though. Here's why. Rather than being liberated from our condemnation and invited into the saving work of Jesus, which is what I'm saying, we might think that God has made everything right, and that means we are everything wrong. That because we need help, we're helpless. Do you ever feel like that? Because you need to ask for help, you are thus helpless. That's a really hard way to look at yourself, but it can happen. The magnitude of God and the power of God is not a diminishment of you, even though that can happen. And sometimes you think, the more I diminish myself, the uh, greater God is. No, God is great. And so even if you're real close to God, God is still great. And I, th- I think what that can do to us is stunt our ability to change and our willingness to change the world. We can just throw our hands up and say, yeah, I'm just saved by grace, so I can't do anything about it. You know, this whole world's going to hell anyway. So whatever. You know, two degrees Celsius increase in 50 years. Can't, it's not a big deal. It's all going to burn anyway. That's some terrible theology, but it can happen. You probably, you may be, maybe you've heard it. The hope of Lent, then, is that we're free to look at our flawed selves because we are promised salvation. Because we are, we can work on that now. We don't idly wait for it. We actively participate. You can get better. 
So can the world. Because Jesus saved us once and for all, thou must save and thou alone. So we're working with this idea this season uh, during Lent, and I hope that you feel the freedom that comes from the final work of Jesus on the cross. And I hope you feel empowered to accept the invitation to participate in the work of salvation too. And I hope that we can reflect on the different areas of our life with freedom that Jesus is making right. And so for, throughout the season, we're working with different parts of our experience as humans on earth about how God is making us right and making the world right. And we're starting with a big one. It's, it's actually a, it's, it's, it's bigger than can fit in this talk. We're starting with our bodies. How is, how is Jesus making our bodies right? This is a little, this is, it's, 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 a, it's a little complicated thing to talk about. It's a big subject. But I don't want to delve into, and I wouldn't delve into, what a right and what a wrong body is. I know that term right can, can make conjure up that sort of dichotomy for you, but let's just drop that now. If that's what's happening in your mind, let it go, because that's not what I mean when I say right. When I say right, I don't mean as opposed to wrong. I'm referring to this term in Greek, um, dikaiosune which means righteousness, which means justice, which means rectification. You might say, instead of God is making all things right, you might say God is making all things just. God is making all things righteous. God is redeeming all things. That's what we're working with. God is redeeming us. God is redeeming our bodies. How is God redeeming our bodies might be a better way to think about this. So there's some power in that justice that we're assured, especially when it relates to our bodies, because it means we aren't in charge of making our bodies right. But what does that mean for us, then, personally? When I talk about bodies, I don't want to talk about the forms of our bodies as much, because I think when we assign meaning, when we discuss the physical attributes of our bodies, we begin to assign meaning to those attributes. And when I say meaning, I mean value. We assign value to those attributes which I actually think undoes the righteousness that God is assigning them. And I don't need to go into a long list here, but you can imagine how we value our bodies. We value gender in different ways, which is often assigned to us by our bodies, right? One example. We, value, uh, we assign value to skin color, especially in the United States. We assign value to... Uh, uh, body weight, physique. We assign value to whether people are able-bodied or not. These are all things that, that ways that we can assign value to a different forms of our body. And so what's interesting is there's a lot of dehumanization that happens when we think of our bodies in such a way. And I really do think that gets us off on the wrong foot. When we assign varying meanings to our body, we're dehumanizing ourselves. We're actually making ourselves less alive, in my opinion. Every bit of oppression that you experience as a result of what society has assigned as valuable based on your body is a little death in you. Oppression is, is, is killing. It's ending life. It's diminishing life. And so when we are oppressed because of how we look, we're being killed. 
So I think human, the human life and the body are not separable. They're connected. Life and body are one. In fact, um, in seminary, I wrote a paper on this subject. I was answering the prompt, can you be meaningfully alive without a body? You know, that's a fairly uh, useless question in everyday life, but in seminary, it's very interesting. So I wrote, my, my response was, you need a body to be alive. There's so much backed into that statement, but I want to rest with it for a second. I know this sounds, some of you are looking at me like, what, you went, to, you went to graduate school to say you need a body to be alive? <laughs> I know, it doesn't, it seems so obvious, doesn't it? But it isn't. <laughs> you know, any kid, any like four-year-old to be like, yeah, you need, like, what happens when you grow up? The, but, but the idea is the body is your life. It's not a container of your life. Sometimes you hear people talk about a, every, if you read science fiction, you'll see, hear people talk about a disembodied existence. And when they do this, they talk about your life being downloaded onto a server or your brain is preserved in some way and thus you can continue without your body. Not only is this totally unverifiable, and has never happened. The assumption that it makes about life is that life is purely an intellectual activity. But it's not, or at least it's not, in my opinion. Our bodies are sacred because they are our lives. And if our bodies are not elemental to our lives, or one and the same, there is, a, there is significant consequence to that philosophy that I was already kind of talking about just a second ago. And I think that consequence actually expresses itself in our world today. If we're informed by uh, Greek philosophers, we still think of body and soul as separate. Platonic dualism is the fancy word for that. And so we might think even as Christians that our bodies are less important because the saving work of Jesus is actually about our souls and not our physical bodies. Now, I'm going to tell you this. Your physical body is what Jesus is saving. There's nothing else in you. There's not a spirit or a ghost or a soul that Jesus is saving while the rest of your body isn't. No, your, your physical flesh is what's being saved, right? And this is manifestly in the New Testament. This is why after the resurrection in John 21, when Jesus meets his disciples, he actually ingests food. He eats fish on the Sea of Galilee, and his body retains the fish. It doesn't fall out of him, like you can imagine a ghost. If a ghost ate, they wouldn't, I mean, that's how I imagine ghosts. They would eat, and then it would leave them. You know, wouldn't, the body doesn't have, uh, you know, uh, permanence. Anyway, I think about ghosts a lot, apparently. But there's, but more than just the philosophy here, there's, there's, there's theological consequence to how we think about whether Jesus is saving our bodies or not, whether our bodies are our lives or not, because it affects how we treat our bodies. There is a end of the world consequence, eschatological consequence, because it views how we see the resurrection. But there's ethical consequences because it's, it, it, it changes how we treat one another and even the very creation around us. 
if we're to be resurrected, then so will the earth around us. And our, our future is embodied, and so it leads us to care for both community and creation right now. Our bodies and souls are one and the same. And if they're not exactly one and the same, they're at least inseparable. A prominent 20th century theologian suggested that bodies and souls are indestructibly connected. To destroy one would be to destroy the other. He said, humans, human beings exist and, and a, a, a human being exists and is therefore a soul and it exists in a certain form and is therefore a body. Jesus exemplifies this embodied soul or your besold body. Humans are like Jesus, inseparable as, as, um, as Jesus is God and man, we are as body and soul. And so this sounds a little, this is a little philosophical, so, but, 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 but we'll, we'll get down to earth soon. When I say that Jesus is making our bodies right, I mean that Jesus is saving our bodies and saving our lives. That's what I mean. That's what making right means, keeping them alive. And so when I say, when I say that, what's he saving us from? Death, to put it quickly. The work of Jesus on the cross, the work that he has done, and that he has done alone, is saving our bodies from destruction. It's a life-giving sacrifice that happens on the cross. We have corrupted the way that we see our bodies. Maybe in part due to Greek dualism, somewhere in there. I know you're not thinking about Greek dualism every day by separating the body and the soul. But not just in our thoughts, but also our actions, right? We abuse our bodies. We abuse other people's bodies. We end life. That's destroying a body. And you can see this every day. War-torn world, endless war, police violence, sexual assault. The list goes on and on. We don't we, the world around us doesn't respect life. Doesn't respect bodies. Doesn't respect healthcare particularly. And so, it, it, to, to make it a little smaller on top of that, you know, I for one don't listen to my body. Um, we might use our bodies in ways they're not meant to be used. We might treat them as a little less than frail than they are. So the culmination of Jesus' life isn't surprising. It ends in death. It ends in crucifixion. The powers see Jesus' flesh as crucifiable. Jesus is so human, Jesus dies. And in his death, he not only saves us, he endures everything that we endure and identifies with us. He is broken so that we are not. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. The answer to the question of bodily rightness, bodily justice, bodily righteousness isn't just acting like we aren't living together, though. It's not just leaving each other alone. It's not never interacting because we're so frail. The antidote to violence against our bodies isn't never interacting with each other. It's, not never, it's never not touching each other. It's not fearing our bodies because the other side of being reckless with our bodies is seeing our bodies as a source of sin instead of life. 
that the things I do with my body are sinful, and so I'll avoid any, any, anything like that. Maybe you've heard this before. That can lead to a very limited experience of our lives where we never learn to enjoy food or sex or dancing or all sorts of things that can lead to, a, to more life instead of life diminishment and death. Your body is a tool for more life, not just life diminishment. Though certainly it can do that, as we've already listed out. When we see our bodies as sources of sin instead of abodes of God, that is to say, homes for God, we really are just slowly dying. But we are moving from crucifiable bodies to bodies that aren't. We aren't just graduating from our bodies into thin air. And so for now, we're not going for a sterile environment. We can be both free and connected. We can actually use our bodies to deepen and further our lives instead of being afraid of them. The last person that needed to die was Jesus. But the condition of, the, of, the, of, of violence that the world is in is exactly what Jesus is making right now. We're working on moving with Jesus instead of allying with evil. Jesus defeated death on the cross, yes. That doesn't get us off the hook because we can either decide to ally with death or move with Jesus. It's not an ultimatum because even if we fail, we aren't condemned by our failings. And it doesn't give us a license to fail, nor does it condemn us to failure. Can you hold that together? That just because you're not condemned doesn't mean you have a license to fail, and just because you fail doesn't mean you're condemned. But it should inspire us to confess and try again. And it starts with loving our bodies, loving our lives, loving ourselves, just like Jesus did. Operating out of the mentality that we are saved and thus sacred. Lent is a season to get in touch with our bodies again. One reason to fast during Lent is to get in touch with your body more. So maybe in your fast this year, you can notice your body and cherish it even more. Live into the salvation that you're promised. Live into the saving of your body that is given to you. Let's pray and then we'll do a little talk back. Thank you, Lord, for being present with us and faithful to us. Thanks for saving us and making this right. Keep making us right. Keep making how we see our bodies right and how we treat one another's right. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.